Part 2, Chapter 2, Section 1 of Chance by Joseph Conrad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Chance, Part 2, Chapter 2. Young Powell Sees and Hears. Section 1. You remember, went on Marlow, how I feared that Mr. Powell's want of experience would stand in his way of appreciating the unusual. The unusual I had in my mind was something of a very subtle sort the unusual in marital relations. I may well have doubted the capacity of a young man too much concerned with the creditable performance of his professional duties to observe what, in the nature of things, is not easily observable in itself, and still less so under the special circumstances. In the majority of ships, a second officer has not many points of contact with the captain's wife. He sits at the same table with her at meals, generally speaking, he may now and then be addressed more or less kindly on insignificant matters and have the opportunity to show her some small attentions on deck, and that is all. Under such conditions, signs can be seen only by a sharp and practised eye. I am alluding now to troubles which are subtle, often to the extent of not being understood by the very hearts they devastate or uplift. Yes, Mr. Powell, whom the chance of his name had thrown upon the floating stage of that tragic comedy, would have been perfectly useless for my purpose if the unusual of an obvious kind had not aroused his attention from the first. We know how he joined that ship, so suddenly offered to his anxious desire to make a real start in his profession. He had come on board breathless with the hurried winding up of his shore affairs, accompanied by two horrible night-birds, escorted by a dock policeman on the make, received by an asthmatic shadow of a shipkeeper, warned not to make a noise in the darkness of the passage because the captain and his wife were already on board. That in itself was already somewhat unusual. Captains and their wives do not, as a rule, join a moment sooner than is necessary. They prefer to spend the last moments with their friends and relations. A ship in one of London's older docks, with their restrictions as to lights and so on, is not the place for a happy evening. Still, as the tide served at six in the morning, one could understand them coming on board the evening before. Just then, young Powell felt as if anybody ought to be glad enough to be quit of the shore. We know he was an orphan from a very early age, without brothers or sisters. No near relations of any kind, I believe, except that aunt who had quarrelled with his father. No affection stood in the way of the quiet satisfaction with which he thought that now all the worries were over, that there was nothing before him but duties, that he knew what he would have to do as soon as the dawn broke and for a long succession of days. A most soothing certitude. He enjoyed it in the dark, stretched out in his bunk with his new blankets pulled over him. Some clock ashore beyond the dock gate struck two. And then he heard nothing more, because he went off into a light sleep from which he woke with a start. He had not taken his clothes off, it was hardly worth while. He jumped up and went on deck. The morning was clear, colourless, grey overhead, the dock like a sheet of darkling glass crowded with upside-down reflections of warehouses, of hulls and masts of silent ships. Rare figures moved here and there on the distant quays. A knot of men stood alongside with clothes bags and wooden chests at their feet. Others were coming down the lane between tall blind walls, surrounding a handcart loaded with more bags and boxes. It was the crew of the Ferndale. They began to come on board. 
He scanned their faces as they passed forward, filling the roomy deck with the shuffle of their footsteps and the murmur of voices, like the awakening to life of a world about to be launched into space. Far away down the clear glassy stretch in the middle of the long dock, Mr. Powell watched the tugs coming in quietly through the open gates. A subdued, firm voice behind him interrupted this contemplation. It was Franklin, the thick chief mate, who was addressing him with a watchful, appraising stare of his prominent black eyes. "'You better take a couple of these chaps with you and look out for her aft. We're going to cast off.' "'Yes, sir,' Powell said, with proper alacrity, but for a moment they remained looking at each other fixedly. Something like a faint smile altered the set of the chief mate's lips just before he moved off forward with his brisk step. Mr. Powell, getting up on the poop, touched his cap to Captain Anthony, who was there alone. He tells me that it was only then that he saw his captain for the first time. The day before in the shipping office, what with the bad light and his excitement at this birth obtained as if by a brusque and unscrupulous miracle, did not count. He had then seemed to him much older and heavier. He was surprised at the lithe figure, broad of shoulder, narrow at the hips, the fire of the deep-set eyes, the springiness of the walk. The captain gave him a steady stare, nodded slightly, and went on pacing the poop with an air of not being aware of what was going on, his head rigid, his movements rapid. Powell stole several glances at him with a curiosity very natural under the circumstances. He wore a short grey jacket and a grey cap. In the light of the dawn, growing more limpid rather than brighter, Powell noticed the slightly sunken cheeks under the trimmed beard, the perpendicular fold on the forehead, something hard and set about the mouth. It was too early yet for the work to have begun in the dock. The water gleamed placidly, no movement anywhere on the long straight lines of the quays, no one about to be seen except the few dockhands busy alongside the Ferndale, knowing their work, mostly silent or exchanging a few words in low tones, as if they too had been aware of that lady who mustn't be disturbed. The Ferndale was the only ship to leave that tide. The others seemed still asleep, without a sound and only here and there a figure coming up on the forecastle leaned on the rail to watch the proceedings idly. Without trouble and fuss, and almost without a sound, was the Ferndale leaving the land, as if stealing away. Even the tugs, now with their engines stopped, were approaching her without a ripple, the burly-looking paddle-boat shearing forward, while the other, a screw, smaller and of slender shape, made for her quarter so gently that she did not divide the smooth water, but seemed to glide on its surface as if on a sheet of plate glass, a man in her bow, the master at the wheel visible only from the waist upward above the white screen of the bridge, both of them so still-eyed as to fascinate young Powell into curious self-forgetfulness and immobility. He was steeped, sunk in the general quietness, remembering the statement, she's a lady that mustn't be disturbed, and repeating to himself idly, no, she won't be disturbed, she won't be disturbed. Then the first loud words of that morning, breaking that strange hush of departure with a sharp hail, look out for that line there, made him start. The line whizzed past his head, one of the sailors aft caught it, and there was an end to the fascination, to the quietness of spirit which had stolen on him at the very moment of departure. 
From that moment till two hours afterwards, when the ship was brought up in one of the lower reaches of the Thames, off an apparently uninhabited shore, near some sort of inlet where nothing but two anchored barges flying a red flag could be seen, Powell was too busy to think of the lady that mustn't be disturbed, or of his captain, or of anything else unconnected with his immediate duties. In fact, he had no occasion to go on the poop, or even look that way much. But while the ship was about to anchor, casting his eyes in that direction, he received an absurd impression that his captain, he was up there of course, was sitting on both sides of the aftermost skylight at once. He was too occupied to reflect on this curious delusion, this phenomenon of seeing double as though he had had a drop too much. He only smiled at himself. As often happens after a grey daybreak, the sun had risen in a warm and glorious splendour above the smooth, immense gleam of the enlarged estuary. Wisps of mist floated like trails of luminous dust, and in the dazzling reflections of water and vapours, the shores had the murky, semi-transparent darkness of shadows cast mysteriously from below. Powell, who had sailed out of London all his young seaman's life, told me that it was then in a moment of entranced vision an hour or so after sunrise, that the river was revealed to him for all time, like a fair face often seen before, which is suddenly perceived to be the expression of an inner and unsuspected beauty, of that something unique and only its own which rouses a passion of wonder and fidelity and an unappeasable memory of its charm. The hull of the Ferndale, swung head to the eastward, caught the light, her tall spars and rigging steeped in a bath of red gold, from the waterline full of glitter to the trucks slight and gleaming against the delicate expanse of the blue. "'Time we had a mouthful to eat,' said a voice at his side. It was Mr. Franklin, the chief mate, with his head sunk between his shoulders and melancholy eyes. "'Let the men have their breakfast, boatswain,' he went on, "'and have the fire out in the galley in half an hour at the latest, "'so that we can call these barges of explosives alongside.' "'Come along, young man. I don't know your name. "'Haven't seen the captain to speak to since yesterday afternoon "'when he rushed off to pick up a second mate somewhere. "'How did he get you?' "'Young Powell, a little shy, notwithstanding the friendly disposition of the other, "'answered him smilingly, aware somehow that there was something marked in this inquisitiveness, "'natural, after all, something anxious. "'His name was Powell, and he was put in the way of this berth by Mr. Powell, the shipping master.' He blushed. Ah, I see. Well, you've been smart in getting ready. The shipkeeper, before he went away, told me you joined at one o'clock. I didn't sleep on board last night, not I. There was a time when I never cared to leave this ship for more than a couple of hours in the evening, even while in London. But now, since... He checked himself with a roll of his prominent eyes towards that youngster, that stranger. Meantime, he was leading the way across the quarter-deck under the poop into the long passage with the door of the saloon at the far end. It was shut. But Mr. Franklin did not go so far. After passing the pantry, he opened suddenly a door on the left of the passage to Powell's great surprise. "'Our mess-room,' he said, entering a small cabin, painted white, bare, lighted from part of the foremost skylight, and furnished only with a table and two settees with movable backs. That surprises you? Well, it isn't usual, and it wasn't so in this ship either before. It's only since... He checked himself again. Yes, here we shall feed, you and I, facing each other for the next twelve months or more. God knows how much more. 
The bosun keeps the deck at mealtimes in fine weather. He talked, not exactly wheezing, but like a man whose breath is somewhat short, and the spirit, young Powell could not help thinking, embittered by some mysterious grievance. There was enough of the unusual there to be recognised even by Powell's inexperience. The officers kept out of the cabin against the custom of the service, and then this sort of accent in the mate's talk. Franklin did not seem to expect conversational ease from the new second mate. He made several remarks about the old, deploring the accident. Awkward, very awkward this thing to happen, on the very eve of sailing. Collarbone, an arm broken, he sighed. Sad, very sad. Did you notice if the captain was at all affected? Eh? Must have been. Before this congested face, these globular eyes turned yearningly upon him, young Powell, one must keep in mind that he was but a youngster then, who could not remember any signs of visible grief, confessed with an embarrassed laugh that, owing to the suddenness of this lucky chance coming to him, he was not in a condition to notice the state of other people. "'I was so pleased to get a ship at last,' he murmured, further disconcerted by the sort of pent-up gravity in Mr. Franklin's aspect. "'One man's food, another man's poison,' the mate remarked. "'That holds true beyond mere victuals. "'I suppose it didn't occur to you that it was a damn poor way for a good man to be knocked out.' "'Mr. Powell admitted openly that he had not thought of that. "'He was ready to admit that it was very reprehensible of him, "'but Mr. Franklin had no intention, apparently, to moralise. "'He did not fall silent, either.' His further remarks were to the effect that there had been a time when Captain Anthony would have showed more than enough concern for the least thing happening to one of his officers. Yes, there had been a time. And mind, he went on, laying down suddenly a half-consumed piece of bread and butter and raising his voice, poor Matthews was the second man the longest on board. I was the first. He joined a month later, about the same time as the steward, by a few days. The boatswain and the carpenter came the voyage after. Steady men, still here. No good man need ever have thought of leaving the Ferndale unless he were a fool. Some good men are fools, don't know when they are well off. I mean the best of good men, men that you would do anything for. They go on for years, then, all of a sudden. Our young friend listened to the mate with a queer sense of discomfort growing on him. For it was as though Mr. Franklin were thinking aloud and putting him into the delicate position of an unwilling eavesdropper. But there was in the mess room another listener. It was the steward who had come in carrying a tin coffee pot with a long handle and stood quietly by, a man with a middle-aged sallow face, long features, heavy eyelids, a soldierly grey moustache. His body encased in a short black jacket with narrow sleeves, his long legs in very tight trousers, made up an agile, youthful, slender figure. He moved forward suddenly and interrupted the mate's monologue. More coffee, Mr. Franklin? Nice fresh lot, piping hot. I'm going to give breakfast to the saloon directly, and the cook is raking his fire out. Now's your chance. The mate, who on account of his peculiar build could not turn his head freely, twisted his thick trunk slightly, and ran his black eyes in the corners towards the steward. And is the precious pair of them out, he growled. The steward, pouring out the coffee into the mate's cup, muttered moodily but distinctly, the lady wasn't when I was laying the table. Powell's ears were fine enough to detect something hostile in this reference to the captain's wife, for of what other person could they be speaking? 
the steward added with a gloomy sort of fairness. But she will be before I bring the dishes in. She never gives that sort of trouble. That she doesn't. No, not in that way, Mr. Franklin agreed. And then both he and the steward, after glancing at Powell, the stranger to the ship, said nothing more. But this had been enough to rouse his curiosity. Curiosity is natural to man. Of course, it was not a malevolent curiosity, which, if not exactly natural, is to be met fairly frequently in men, and perhaps more frequently in women, especially if a woman be in question, and that woman under a cloud, in a manner of speaking. For under a cloud, Florida Barrel was fated to be, even at sea. Yes, even that sort of darkness which attends a woman for whom there is no clear place in the world hung over her. Yes, even at sea. And this is the pathos of being a woman. A man can struggle to get a place for himself or perish, but a woman's part is passive, say what you like, and shuffle the facts of the world as you may, hinting at lack of energy or wisdom or courage. As a matter of fact, almost all women have all that of their own kind, but they are not made for attack. Wait, they must. I'm speaking here of women who are really women. And it's no use talking of opportunities either. I know that some of them do talk of it, but not the genuine women. Those know better. Nothing can beat a true woman for a clear vision of reality. I would say a cynical vision of how I'm not afraid of wounding your chivalrous feelings, for which, by the by, women are not so grateful as you may think to fellows of your kind. Upon my word, Marlowe, I cried, what are you flying out at me for like this? I wouldn't use an ill-sounding word about women, but what right have you to imagine that I am looking for gratitude? Marlowe raised a soothing hand. There, there, I take back the ill-sounding word, with the remark, though, that cynicism seems to me a word invented by hypocrites. But let that pass. As to women, they know that the clamour for opportunities for them to become something which they cannot be is as reasonable as if mankind at large starting asking for opportunities of winning immortality in this world, in which death is the very condition of life. You must understand that I am not talking here of material existence. That naturally is implied, but you won't maintain that a woman who, say, enlisted, for instance, there have been cases, has conquered her place in the world, she has only got her living in it, which is quite meritorious, but not quite the same thing. All these reflections which arise from my picking up the thread of Flora de Barrel's existence did not, I am certain, present themselves to Mr. Powell, not the Mr. Powell we know taking solitary weekend cruises in the estuary of the Thames with mysterious dashes into lonely creeks, but to the young Mr. Powell, the chance second officer of the ship Ferndale, commanded, and for the most part owned, by Roderick Anthony, the son of the poet, you know. A Mr. Powell, much slenderer than our robust friend is now, with the bloom of innocence not quite rubbed off his smooth cheeks, and apt not only to be interested, but also to be surprised by the experience life was holding in store for him. This would account for his remembering so much of it with considerable vividness. For instance, the impressions attending his first breakfast on board the Ferndale, both visual and mental, were as fresh to him as if received yesterday. The surprise, it is easy to understand, would arise from the inability to interpret aright the signs which experience, a thing mysterious in itself, makes to our understanding and emotions. For it is never more than that. 
Our experience never gets into our blood and bones. It always remains outside of us. That's why we look with wonder at the past. And this persists even when from practice and through growing callousness of fibre we come to the point where nothing that we meet in that rapid blinking stumble across a flick of sunshine, which our life is, nothing, I say, which we run against surprises us any more. Not at the time, I mean. If later on we recover the faculty with some such exclamation, Well, well, I'll be hanged if I ever... It is probably because this very thing that there should be a past to look back upon, other people's, is very astounding in itself when one has the time, a fleeting and immense instant, to think of it. I was on the point of interrupting Marlowe when he stopped of himself, his eyes fixed on vacancy, or perhaps, I wouldn't be too hard on him, on a vision. He has the habit, or say the fault, of defective mantelpiece clocks, of suddenly stopping in the very fullness of the tick. If you have ever lived with a clock afflicted with that perversity, you know how vexing it is, such a stoppage. I was vexed with Marlowe. He was smiling faintly while I waited. He even laughed a little. And then I said acidly, Am I to understand that you have ferreted out something comic in the history of Flora de Barrel? Comic, he exclaimed. No, what makes you say? Oh, I laughed, did I? But don't you know that people laugh at absurdities that are very far from being comic? Didn't you read the latest books about laughter written by philosophers, psychologists? There's a lot of them. I dare say there's been a lot of nonsense written about laughter, and tears too for that matter, I said impatiently. They say, pursued the unabashed Marlowe, that we laugh from a sense of superiority, Therefore, observe, simplicity, honesty, warmth of feeling, delicacy of heart and of conduct, self-confidence, magnanimity are laughed at because the presence of these traits in a man's character often puts him into difficult, cruel or absurd situations and makes us, the majority who are fairly free as a rule from these peculiarities, feel pleasantly superior. Speak for yourself, I said. But have you discovered all these fine things in the story, or has Mr. Powell discovered them to you in his artless talk? Have you two been having good healthy laughs together? Come, are your sides aching yet, Marlowe? Marlowe took no offence at my banter. He was quite serious. I should not like to say offhand how much of that there was, he pursued with amusing caution. But there was a situation tense enough for the signs of it to give many surprises to Mr. Powell, neither of them shocking in itself, but with a cumulative effect which made the whole unforgettable in the detail of its progress. And the first surprise came very soon, when the explosives, to which he owed his sudden chance of engagement, dynamite in cases and blasting powder in barrels, taken on board, main hatch battened for sea, cook restored to his functions in the galley, anchor fished and the tug ahead, rounding the south foreland, and with the sun sinking clear and red down the purple vista of the channel, he went on the poop, on duty it is true, but with time to take the first freer breath in the busy day of departure. The pilot was still on board, who gave him first a silent glance and then passed an insignificant remark before resuming his lounging to and fro between the steering wheel and the binnacle. Powell took his station modestly at the break of the poop. He had noticed across the skylight a head in a grey cap, but when, after a time, he crossed over to the other side of the deck, he discovered that it was not the captain's head at all. 
he became aware of grey hairs curling over the nape of the neck. How could he have made that mistake? But on board ship, away from land, one does not expect to come upon a stranger. Powell walked past the man. A thin, somewhat sunken face with a tightly closed mouth stared at the distant French coast, vague like a suggestion of solid darkness, lying a beam beyond the evening light reflected from the level waters, themselves growing more sombre than the sky. A stare across which Powell had to pass, and did pass, with a quick side glance, noting its immovable stillness. His passage disturbed those eyes no more than if he had been as immaterial as a ghost and this failure of his person in producing an impression affected him strangely. Who could that old man be? He was so curious that he even ventured to ask the pilot in a low voice. The pilot turned out to be a good-natured specimen of his kind, condescending, sententious. He had been down to his meals in the main cabin and had something to impart. That, queer fish, eh? Mrs. Anthony's father... I've been introduced to him in the cabin at breakfast time. Name of Smith. Wonder if he has all his wits about him. They take him about with them, it seems. Don't look very happy, eh? Then, changing his tone abruptly, he desired Powell to get all hands on deck and make sail on the ship. I shall be leaving you in half an hour. You'll have plenty of time to find out all about the old gent, he added, with a thick laugh. End of part two, chapter two, section one.